Then Moses climbed Mount Nebo, from the plains of Moab to the top of Pisgah, across from Jericho. There the Lord showed him the whole land, from Gilead to Dan, all of Naphtali, the territory of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev, and the whole region from the valley of Jericho, the city of Palms, as far as Zoar. Then the Lord said to him, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab, in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Moses was 120 years old when he died, yet his eyes were not weak, nor his strength gone. The Israelites grieved for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days, until the time of weeping and mourning was over. Now Joshua, son of Nun, was filled with the spirit of wisdom, because Moses had laid hands on him. So the Israelites listened to him and did what the Lord commanded Moses. Since then, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those miraculous signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one ever has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So, there are those who assert quite adamantly that the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were all written by Moses. They are his account. That is why uh, we refer to them as the books of Moses. But passages like today raise some questions about that assumption. For all, we'd expect a book written by Moses, which concludes with his own death, that the book might end like, Thus spoke Moses to the Israelites. You know, I don't feel so good. But no, this book not only gives an account of his death, but his burial and, um, and, and, and the sort of assessment of his life. Now, the, the explanation for this that they give is that, well, Moses was operating under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and so it didn't have to happen already in order for Moses to give an account of it. On the other, on the other hand, most scholars assume that the books of Moses were edited and compiled uh, hundreds of years later when Israel finds itself in Babylon. They are exiled from this promised land. And so these books are put together in an attempt to figure out what went wrong. How is it we ended up here? What, what has gone wrong? And this not only offers an, uh, an alternative account for why we get a, a, a depiction of Moses' death, what's also interesting about that is uh, it, it makes sense of this sort of obituary that's included in the account of Moses' death. As, you know, it's sort of like as Israel's compiling these, the stories of Israel's uh, departure from Egypt, its conquest of the land, and then the account of the judges, and then the move into the, the monarchy, and looking it over, like, you know, wow, this Moses, 
he, he's unique. There is no one else like him. I remember a comic once saying that you will never hear somebody say, hey, you know that guy, he's like Liberace, only more so. Because there is no more so when it comes to Liberace. You can't out-Liberace Liberace. Liberace. Uh, well, in a sense, what they're saying here is like, you know, there may be people like Moses, but Moses, no one out-Moses Moses. I mean, the nature of his relationship with God is unique, uh, and the things that God does through Moses, those are all unique. So he's sort of the Hebrew Bible's Michael Jordan. And what's remarkable, he's 120, it says, when he dies. Now, that might be an explanation for why he dies. Well, he's 120. But no, it's not really, because uh, even though he spent the last third of his life leading a rather belligerent people through the wilderness, uh, one of the things it says about him is he had his vision. You know, he he had the vision of somebody, I don't know, fourth his age, he had... Uh, all the vigor that was that other translations cause the, the, this one says strength but others say he still had all the vigor I mean so he was ready to go so his death was not his body's way of saying okay look I need a break I'm done no he, he had uh, you still sort of youthful so he's not dying at the end of a long debilitating condition he doesn't slowly fall apart he has a He's full of life, and then he isn't. Now, I suspect that if given the choice, that is how uh, we'd all like to go. I think Ernie, you were saying, he's cogent, you know, just the day before. Uh, You want to have a full life, and then uh, when you go, it's sort of like firing on all cylinders, and then you're not firing up at all. But in Moses' case... There is something a bit tragic about dying the way he does. And on the surface, it almost seems a little cruel. And by this, I don't so much mean how Moses dies, but more where he dies. For 40 years, he serves as this go-between between God and Israel. And there are times, as we read, that there are times when those t- the two parties in this covenant are ready to call it quits on each other. Israel wants to go back to Egypt. Israel's content to worship some trinket as their god. And God is furious and is ready to serve up a belly full of divine wrath to every one of those jerks. And it's Moses... Moses' intervention. Moses steps up boldly, tenaciously. I mean, without Moses, the story comes to a rather violent end. For 40 years, he's in that role. And it's 40 years, not because the promised land is so remote. Uh, The fact is that the distance between the Red Sea and the Jordan River is about the equivalent of the distance between uh, Bremen and Indy. So, uh, you know, it's not, that's not why it takes 40 years. It takes 40 years because Israel has to get in the right mindset for 
living in the land, to know what it means to live in covenant with God in the land. And so the book of Deuteronomy is this long speech. It's like a a user-end agreement. Uh, The terms and conditions for life in the promised land. And and by the time they get to the end of it, Israel clicks the box and says they are ready to go. But the thing is, no one is more ready to go than Moses. No one is more committed to the terms and conditions of that covenant than he is. No one is more ready to check that box, to to sign the dotted line. He's 120 years old, but the body of someone half his age, the eyes of some quarter age, he could have made that trip. But he's not allowed. The most he's allowed is to stand on a mountaintop and just take it in, which he does, and then he dies. Now, this doesn't come as a surprise to Moses. Uh, The issue of Moses not being able to go into the promised land first comes up in a story in the book of Numbers. And that's a story that closely resembles a story from Exodus that we read. Again, Israel's thirsty. Again, there's no water. And again, the people start complaining. And again, God tells Moses to go to a particular rock in order to get the water. But this time, what's different is God says, speak to the rock. Well, Moses doesn't do that. He is ticked. He says, listen, you rebels, must we, and here he means himself and his brother Aaron, must we bring you water out of the rock? And then he turns and he strikes the rock and he strikes it again. And then the water comes gushing out. I mean, it's clearly kind of a low moment for Moses. First of all, whether he hits the rock or talks to it, uh, Moses isn't the one that's bringing water from the rock, right? He's taking a little more credit there than he deserves. I mean, God is doing this. Second, God did say, talk to the rock, not hit it. You know, you're not the Fonz with the jukebox at Arnold's where you do, and it just starts working. No, you know, do as you're told. Now, what's interesting is, within the book of Deuteronomy, that is not the reason given for why Moses doesn't go into the promised land. In the opening chapter, one of the first things Moses says in that speech is he says, I'm not going to the promised land because of your sin. Now, most interpreters understand this as a reference to a judgment Uh, on the generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt. The reason that Israel wanders the wilderness those 40 years is due to the fact that when they were given the opportunity to go into the promised land, they all chickened out, right? And so this is, okay, well, look, we got to let this generation die off. And the next generation, they will then take the land. Well, Moses was not among the chickens, but he was a part of that generation. And so no exception is made for Moses. Now, whether we understand it as related to the incident at the rock 
or whether we understand it as related to this bit about generations or somehow it's a combination of the two, it doesn't change the fact that's kind of a gut punch that Moses doesn't get to go. You know, I've, I've preached through Exodus before. I think the last time I did was probably 15 years ago. And I certainly don't recall having such uh, profound respect for the character arc of Moses. I mean, after all, right, he's born in, and, he, uh, and he's able to live in the house of Pharaoh. And he sees an Egyptian slave driver trying to, you know, beating a Hebrew. And he thinks, oh, I'm, I'm going to take matters into my own hand. And so he kills the Egyptian sh- the slave driver. And that's just a disaster requiring him to flee, uh, live in exile. And so here's somebody who knows what happens when he tries to take matters into his own hands. And I think that's formative for him because no one is more adamant that it's that God has to be in, in these things or it's not going to happen, right? He, when God uh, warned, you know, suggested he's going to sort of uh, allow an angel to lead them, Moses, no, you have got to be a part of this. And once God, he is assured that God is going to be a part of it, I mean, Moses puts all fears aside and he will do what God asks. Plus, he and God are friends. Right? There's that remarkable verse that says, Moses and God talk to one another as a, as a friend talks to a friend. And as his obituary states, he's the Liberace Michael Jordan of the Hebrew Scriptures. And you see, you want to say, come on, God, make an exception for this guy. Let him enter into the land he so faithfully brought your people to. Uh, in preparing for the sermon, you know, I read various things. One of the more helpful things I read was an article by somebody named the rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And he, one of the things that's helpful that he does is he lays out the history of various rabbis' understanding. What is it that Moses does wrong? And they all have their various takes. And, and he has his own take. And it, what's his take is, well, you know, uh, this new generation needed a new, a new type of leader. And, and so his take on that, at that uh, incident at the rock is, you know, God is giving Moses an opportunity to, be a, to, to lead differently. Talk instead of striking the rock. But Moses, you know, he's one of the, you know, uh, when you're a hammer, every problem is a nail kind of thing. And so he handles it the same way. He still uh, strikes the rock, an indication that he, uh, he needed to pass off uh, the leadership. Eh, I don't know if I buy it, uh, but I don't find any of the other interpretations altogether satisfying either. And I, I've come to sort of the conclusion that there isn't really an altogether satisfying interpretation, and that's okay. Um, But what we are seeing here is, in fact, what we see all the time. Um, What we encounter here at the end of Deuteronomy, at the end of Moses' life, is what we all face with our own lives. At the end, 
we have to leave things undone. There are going to be loose threads. And you have to be able to live with that. Because if our commitment to God, if our commitment to living life faithfully is dependent on achieving certain results, having very, these specific outcomes, that you have to have those things in place, that is a recipe for a very frustrated life. Because one of two things can happen. First of all, there's the obvious. The obvious thing is you'll never be able to achieve it. You'll never obtain it. The promised land is always just going to be on the other side of the river. And once, you know, and so if you have to have these results, suddenly uh, the idea that, uh, you know, you have to live with that open-endedness just makes you bitter and cynical and, you know, and all those efforts feel like a waste. The other scenario is you, in fact, do achieve everything you've wanted. And that can often be worse because you've been motivated to achieve that. I, this is what this will give my life meaning. And then you have it. And you realize it doesn't, it didn't deliver. It didn't satisfy. I've mentioned that novel, Infinite Jest, uh, which a lot of it takes place in this tennis academy. And the author says, you know, part of the reason why tennis players are often so young is not that they're at the peak of their physical abilities. They're young because they still believe that if they punish their body to do all these things and they achieve the thing, that it'll make sense of their lives. So I think there is something about the fact that Moses can't go in. That is sort of heartbreaking. I fully believe Moses was heartbroken by the fact he couldn't go in. But had Moses understood this as a betrayal on God's part, I'm sure Moses would have voiced that. He shows that throughout the text. that he, If he feels like God is not coming through, he will let God know. The other thing is, uh, another you know, sign that he's, he's come to made some peace with it is because uh, he doesn't lose heart and just sort of you know, come to the end, you're sort of... Uh, disillusioned and bitter. No, he's clearly not. I mean, the book of Deuteronomy, here's, here's the, the, the plot summary. Moses starts the speech, Moses ends the speech, and dies. I mean, it's like the ninth longest book in the Bible, and it's just a three-hour speech by Moses. He is still deeply invested in the work he's doing. He wants to make sure that, that Israel is very clear on their, uh, their, the covenant they're entering into and how to live into the land. You know, it reminds me, years ago, I met somebody who people, who, who people would hire to write their biography. And most of the time, the biographies that he was writing weren't intended to be, you know, New York Times bestsellers. Primarily, they were written to be given to family and to, to their children and grandchildren. And he, he was telling me this really great story. And at some point, I'll have I'm. I'll use his story. I'll tell you more about this story. But he was telling me this story about somebody who had fought the Germans as part of the French resistance. And it was, you know, they had this really great conversation. And he's like, all right, I've got everything I need. Leaves. And then he's, the next day, he says, well, you know what? I want to uh, get a few more details on something. And he, he arrives there and he finds out the guy 
died during the night. I'm like, oh, I was like, wow, can you believe that? And he says, I'm gonna be honest with you. It's not the first time. He says, I feel, sometimes I feel like I should put on my card that I'm not only a biographer, but a, a grim reaper. Because oftentimes people will tell their story and it's sort of like that's the final thing they need to do in order to sort of leave the work unfinished. Uh, that, that's their, that, that gives them the peace they need to go. Well, there is a sense in which, in which the book of Deuteronomy is that for Moses. He's got to tell the story. He retells the story. It's not just his story. It's Israel's story. It's, it's the story of their covenant relationship with God. It's a three-and-a-half-hour speech, probably, uh, which culminates in this challenge to the people. Okay, choose this day whom you will serve. Israel says, we will serve the Lord. Okay, goes up on the mountain, takes a look around, and dies. You know, it is, when you're committed to something, when you have a sense of mission, it is easy to become disillusioned. I remember seeing a thing about uh, burnout and the first, the steps to burnout. And the first step is to have idealism. And you would think, well, that seems the opposite of burnout, to be ideal. And I think the point was, look, if you, were, if you think the world operates according to your ideals, you are, you are one step closer to burnout. And there is so much work that needs to be done. So much that has to go on unfinished by us. To recognize our own limitations is not an excuse to stop caring. But it is an opportunity to learn to trust. And to find comfort in the fact that it's not all on you. What gives your life meaning is not the results that you achieve. It's the God who works in and through you and the God who works when we cannot. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen.